Well, hello and welcome to The Witness Interview. I'm Alison Crogan and today we're talking to the fabulous Candy Bowers, writer, actor, social activist, comedian, producer. Is there no end to this woman's <laughs> possibilities? Probably no. I was going to begin with uh, One the Bear, which oh, yeah. is the musical yeah. play. I say hip hop and spoken with theatre piece. Right, yeah, okay. Specifically, but it's contemporary theatre. Yeah, contemporary theatre for yeah. young people. Yeah. Is this the first thing you've done for young people? No. Okay. This isn't. I was asked to write this on the back of a couple things. So right. I toured. Queensland for the Arts Council. I wrote a show called MC Platypus and Queen Koala's Hip Hop Jam. Oh, they were both for young people. They were for primary oh, okay. age. And then I rewrote Who's That Chick for high school age students. Right. So I've had, I've been in and around, I've always run workshops as well. So um, within high schools, particularly. And so I had like a pretty good grounding, which is. Good because I think we did. I think we did three hundred shows of MC Platypus, and oh I think God. on the hundredth we hit it. Right. So talking about creative development and understanding young people, this particular play is eleven plus. Like a, it's towards the end of the school year, so sort of young adult. You'd yeah. Say in, um, yeah. In book, book terms. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. But what I found, I found really great is it's a, it's a it's an intergenerational story. Like if you're that auntie that gets to take the kids to the big new, you know, uh, Zootopia or Epic, those big cartoons where you just think, wow, this is better than an adult movie. You know, yeah. the stuff in it and the fun of it, but also the messaging. I feel like with fairy tale and allegory, you can play in a way, you know, magic realism, all that. And it's it, this is really fitting in that Afrofuturistic sci-fi okay. space, dystopic space. There's just so much more you can do, yeah. Uh, and and the and the audience calls for it too. It's what they're loving right now. That's why it works. But I found, you know, I found friends who never saw anything like it when they were in that age bracket coming back. Lots of hip hop artists and stuff that came to Brisbane and Campbelltown shows. Just their kids are like, Mom, you know, <laughs> shut up, you know. They're going off, they're shouting and screaming and crying along with the show because they're having this moment, retrograde moment, where they're like, oh, I never saw this when I was this age and I'm reliving that. Um, so there's a lot of things going on for yeah. this one and it's exciting. Um, so this, this is one your sister wrote the music for it. Yes. And you wrote the text. Is yes. that what's happened? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've also, I worked with two outside eyes, um, Susie D and oh, Claire okay. Christian. Right. Um, and both had really different approaches, like the dark clown is what I wanted from Susie. So I directed the work as well, mm-hmm. but I wanted those elements. And I work in a very um, <clears throat> flat sort of collaborative way with my designers too. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're giving in. Claire and also Sister Zai did some dramaturgy work yeah and Susie does anyway yeah, yeah um but so did my lighting designer so did my sister a sound designer they're going are we are we getting this is this clear enough because the work is visual theater I'm a bit of the same like making film I'm an auteur in the theater so all of the visual and the conceptual has to tell the right story Absolutely. and you know yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. real visual storytelling and that's what hip-hop theater is yeah. too it's visual not just banging music and dance moves and poetry. Tell us a bit about hip-hop theatre. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I don't think it's a genre people know. Mm, mm. Yeah. I have been um, 
watching it for years and years. It's been my favourite space to be in and it started with the Hip Hop Theatre Festival in New York but I also went along to um, Breaking Convention in London mm-hmm. and saw Hip Hop Dance Theatre. So right. there's this little little interesting schism between the more spoken word based one and the more dance based one all of them have the visual and the music involved but the mm-hmm. storytelling is so diverse I mean I'd call a mamusa's work since Ali died that's also in the big world up close program spoke a piece of hip-hop spoken yep. word theater um one the bear is written wholly in rhyme from the beginning to the end um and so it's lyrical Mm-hmm. It's always lyrical. Yeah, um, it draws on tropes from the culture and the genre. I think okay. that's an interesting aspect of it. So, which genre? The hip hop, hip hop genre, genre yeah. which is you know new school, mid school, old school, all that stuff, and it harks back and reminds us. So, a lot of hip hop music that's a little misunderstood to the to people who aren't a part of it is. There's a lot of stuff like, say, the Fugees, for example, bringing Roberta Flack back, bringing Bob Marley. They're repackaging a really important part of black culture for a new generation. Mm -hmm. And that's how hip-hop looks at things a lot, you know. How do we do that, take that, you know. And, of course, they have tonnes of cash and they can do that. I have to write all original (laughs) lyrics. (laughs) But they'll still be like, oh, this is coming from this school or that school. Mm And the, the important thing about One the Bear is also it's a huge commentary on hip-hop culture and the way black women's bodies are treated and have been treated throughout and hip-hop just being the current and the most popular sort of space or framework. Okay. Can you you, um, elucidate that a bit? Sure. So in the play, like storyline, deep in the storyline, this is what I talk about where form and meaning and all the message come together in, in the political match. So one and Ursula are two orphan little bear cubs, 16 or so, living in a garbage tip. So I was trying to work out, as I was working out and talking to young people what I should do, I was also hanging with my friend Bear Witness from Tribe Called Red. He's amazing in every way. But um, he said, if you want to know something interesting, our bears have diabetes in Canada. Okay. Uh, Essentially. They are living in garbage dumps now. And I was like really struck by the parallel to First Nations people around the world. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of fairy tale emerged of these bear cubs that had to stand upright and and speak English and could no longer growl or um, fish or, you know, they're eating packaged Mm -hmm. fish fingers instead of fresh fish. Now, then I would look at the the Indigenous female body, right, and um, a really big – so I'm calling on really global First Nations culture. Mm. So that sort of came from Canada. And then Sachi Bartman, who is known as the Venus Hottentot, really important to me. Mm-hmm. She's from quite close to my lineage in South Africa. Okay. And, you know, her vagina was cut out and put in a in a – a bottle and put on exhibition in France and her body was used as, you know, for display of abnormality, you know, of this native body. But also she was brought to London in a show, put on a chain and a leash and people got, you know, for an extra pound you could touch her ass. So in some of the allegorical stuff, and this is what I love teachers if they tap deeper with the students, there's a particular spoken word piece that one does about losing her mum and how she lost her mum and how her mother's body was 
you know, packed up and what was taken from it. There's always the threat, this is going into the Chinese native space, of hunters trying to stare, uh, kill bears for their bile because yeah. bear bile is really amazing. And so these young bears are always under threat of their bear bile being stolen. So they take her mother's claws and teeth for all the new fashion styles. They take her blood for medication. They take every part of her leaving just discarding the parts of the body that they don't need. And there's so much about particularly black women's and Indigenous women's bodies used for science, used for many, many things, right? There's also another line in it. So as one, the story, it's a rags to riches story. So she gets discovered because she's always rapping and then she hears a rap on the radio and she shoots into superstardom and sort of becomes a little Kim Nicki Minaj one the bear. <laughs> and she's lost, she's lost it. She's lost okay. it. She's sucked in and exploited. And all of a sudden all the hunters are getting cosmetic surgery. They're getting tails. <laughs> so it's like the hottest thing to have a bear tail. And Ursula says, so they get the tail without the oppression. So there, throughout right. the show, yeah. um, these factors that we see in the, you know, the Kardashian phenomena, you know, of where we see that cultural appropriation even happening now physically in bodies um, where, you know, uh, yeah, those parts of... Uh, it's an amazing embodied colonisation, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's like I'm it's going to take this part yeah. and keep this part and then, um, you know, make a, be more, have more currency than where it came from. So all of these things are wrapped in this little fairy tale. Um, fairy tales are fabulous in yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, so it's like poetic theatre basically. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's all spoken word, tracks and raps and sketches. And so... What I find, like, I had the most feminist moment of my life, I think, when I performed it in Le Bud in its sort of first just up on its feet development period. I raised some cash to get a lot of brown kids essentially to the show. We had kids, it was amazing, from the Murray School. We had kids from Thursday Island come. I raised about 30 grand to make sure 500 kids could get in there because I'm like, if I'm going to write this for the next generation of queens. I need them in the crowd, you know, and theatre companies don't often have that inbuilt into how to do that. So I've been also working with Arts Centre Melbourne to make sure where we've got that mix there, you right. know. The same kind of program? Um, they do it internally already. So they okay. do have one set yes. up, a bit of a pay it forward or, but like, there's this moment where it's sort of like the oracle of the whole piece is, I can't tell you too much because it's a no, bit of a no reveal. Spoilers. But yeah. um, there's this fantastic moment where Ursula, who who was the sort of scared one at the beginning, gets all this wisdom as her friend's going over the deep end, you know, deep into commodifying her sort of indigeneity in a lot of ways and changing that, you know, things becoming hashtags and and um, all of that Bear cosmetic surgery. Um, yeah, so so Ursula goes on a different journey to go back to the root, as you know, one's taken off in the air. And she she says she's finding out all this amazing stuff. And there's one line she says about these wise, the sister sows. The sister sows are like the the grand, like elder aunts. And um, <clears throat> that was new for me to find out that a female bear is called a sow, like a pig. Same yeah. thing. So um, the sister sales say to her, you know, um, <clears throat> she says, actually, Ursula says, all this I found out from the sisters. They also say, never be defined by the misters. And a <laughs> hundred little brown girls got on their feet and screamed and yelled and stomped their feet for five minutes. Oh, my God. We had we just stood there like deers in the headlights going, we can't 
pause. You know, like we can't really pause the show, but they were so, they got it. Yeah. And then I saw them come out. Of the, they're getting on the bus going, Sister Souse, Sister Souse. And I was like, how did they get the specificity of that? Yeah. Because there are some bigger ones, you know, then there's some very catchy tunes in there. But they, they, they deeply got this understanding of like listening to their to elder women yeah. and defining themselves for themselves, which is, you know, my rock bed of my own sort of black feminist space mm. of Audre Lorde's, you know, legacy. Yes. And that runs through the work deeply and I think that's the biggest part of it is to get these kids, no matter where they come from, to see the possibility of being as uniquely them as possible but also to begin because we don't get taught colonisation no. in school, to actually learn about how it impacts the diaspora today, which is I think it impacts in this way that I'm talking about through media and social media and understanding that. And I think in Australia there is big, big gaps in that understanding. Huge gaps. And I that mean, was a, there, there are gaps everywhere, yeah. but Australia has its own particular gaps, I think. And it was a big reason I wanted to write the work. Yeah. So these conversations would begin happening within something that's so, um, you know, fun. And I think a lot, of, like I loved some of the reviews out of Brisbane, but one through line was people think they're coming, they're going to be f- like it's hardcore or something because of the, you know, it's like, ah, didactic theatre or something. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, they were so cute. This friendship was so beautiful. <laughs> they were gorgeous and warm. I'm like, of course, it's a fairy tale. It's yeah. just that we can choose what we what's underlying. And, I mean, back in the day, fairy tales were always cautionary and had really important messaging. And had very dark and anarchic roots as well. Yeah, and, totally. and the, there's good ones and there's yeah. bad ones. There's oh, ones are. that instill the you know, misogyny and the patriarchy and then there's ones that absolutely don't do that and yep. have hidden meanings, particularly for women. So yep. I feel like I'm absolutely in a canon, a very witchy canon, in, in creating a work like this too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm very – when did you start Black Honey Company? Black Honey Company, was... I think Kim and I – decided because we'd been doing Sister She and stuff before that. So it was about 2012. Okay. So relatively recently in your practice. We we named it. Yeah. But But you were working together before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we're sisters, you know. Yes. But, um, (laughs) yeah, we were working together probably on music projects. Right. Starting with Sister She in about 2002. Okay. With Sarah Ward, 2003. And making our own sort of comic hip-hop space. But then I was still within this time frame. I've adapted Twelfth Night into a hip-hop and soul piece that, you know, Queensland Theatre commissioned. But it didn't A lot of commissioning happens. A lot of commissioning happens. Yeah. And I'm a bit like, that's all right. There's ways in the world that I reckon that one will see the light of day, which is lovely. But we've been, yeah, so we've done a whole bunch of, a whole slew of sort of stuff for young people, for adults. And and I sort of also within the hot brown honey context thought I really want something like this as potent as this but for younger women. Yeah, particularly. Particularly. I remember in one of the shows this kid said to me, excuse me, but is this show feminist and I was like unapologetically and he goes so it's just for girls and I said hell no yeah I said it's for everybody feminism is for everybody and he was looked at me confused and I was like do you like footy and he goes yeah is footy just for guys and he was like 
Hoodies for every. It's the only way I could like. You know, these are very complex. <laughs> it is complex. Yeah, it's hoodie. You know, but I was saying, you know, people are going to see what they need to see, but hopefully they'll also see something they've never seen before or thought mm. about in this way because mm-hmm. these are tough things. Um, but I think that's been <laughs> that's my brand. Like yeah. you know, sort of like finding ways of um, communicating and um, alongside the shock of recognition, that reflection for other particularly women of colour to see Mm -hmm. their stories back to them, to also process what the hell's going on because we, I mean, I grew up, I was saying this to a friend the other night, I mean, when I grew up, home and away, that was the body, right? And in Australia it still sort of largely is. Uh, I travel around the world and the lightness of my skin makes me have currency in some places, but also the size of my ass gives me currency. So say when I was doing Bernada Alba, there was like a, a time where there was, there was some tricky stuff around the optics of that for me. Who am I playing? Who else in the family is of colour? We can't pretend I'm not of colour because I come out in my underwear at one point and if you could get away with it, you can't get away with it once you see my ass, right? Mm-hmm. And then I said to the director, like, you know, Letty and Patricia, so am I a simulated brown girl or am I playing a white girl? And they were like, I didn't know. I said that I would need to understand that in my skin. Mm-hmm. Of course I do. I can't be nothing. Or yeah, do you know what I mean? Well, none of us are neutral. That's right. But, but for some, my white, some some of us are assumed to be neutral. That's right. Yeah. But my white acting counterparts is just not a question they had yeah. to ask of themselves because I I said this is important for when we because of course if you're picking on each other like sisters picking on each other if we're a multiracial family um, having a fat ass is a positive if we're a white family having a fat ass is a negative yeah because fat for white women is negative. Whereas it's not so much for black women. Thickness and fatness is a different. I was always like, you know, when I was at the MTC and I remember <laughs> I was getting my measurements done, the woman was like whispering my measurements to this new girl who's quite cute and young. And she was like, I can't actually hear you. And I said, and I was like, shout it out. I was like, my thighs have gotten me into most clubs in LA and New York. I'm very proud of who I am in my body and my physique. It's just that this culture isn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? I should say this is the production of The House of Bernardo Alba yeah. that was on the, the MTC last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these things are what fascinate me mm-hmm. and how how our bodies are perceived. Oh, so the signification changes the whole wherever ho, you are. Ho, yeah. ho, yeah. ho, 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 ho. I mean, it's e- even for a white woman that happens. Absolutely. But if you're crossing cultures and crossing ethnicities. And for and, me as mixed race and yeah. white, oh, my lordy. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, could, I was around like all these beautiful like South Sudanese women who look like Ralph Lauren models to me and they were like, you're so beautiful. All of our dads would leave our mothers. Like they would be really <laughs> naughty. And I was like, this is fascinating. This is fascinating simply because I'm light. And these, all this coding, colorism, it's really stuff to understand in the world. And, you know, we experience it here with our First Nations people. The, there's such a myriad. And when my South African colleagues came for the fall, they were so amazed at how white looking people called themselves black because in South Africa. Yeah. You wanted to pass for white. And I know here for a period of time too, but that's still, like there's people, most South Africans have like one in 
three white South Africans have black, right. you know, people in their in their lineage, in their ancestry. But they had no cause to say, hey, um, I'm I black too, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so there's, there's I find that First Nations stuff really interesting and the way I sort of play with it in One the Bear is quite silly. I think it's quite silly, but kids get into it. They're into the drama. Yeah. You know, one gets you know, boob job and a nose job. <laughs> it's just really funny. We don't even try to make it look super real. It's silly. Yeah. And, but the kids are crying. The kids are like they're invested and they're invested in the friendship. And I think that's what's interesting too because one of the things I have to do constantly, which is the most painful, is humanise the black feminine mm. because we're not human yet on an Australian stage. We're in servitude, um, we're objects. And mm. for me it's humanising us constantly and I'm going to be doing it for screen as well Yeah. because, and this is what I would say to my students at the VCA, um, which, you know, I love to teach two parts consciousness, one part craft. If you've only seen plays where there are white men as the central characters, where you go through what they go through. They're all these sideline token, you know, whether it's a woman or whether it's a person of colour, a person with disability, and they're all on the side. You just begin to believe that that is the most human sort of well, person. Well, it is the human. It's the not human. even the most yeah. human. I mean, there's literal diagrams <laughs> in the Renaissance of, you know, man, male yeah. in the middle yeah. and then all these circles around with women, white women, <laughs> yeah. you know, black people yeah. and they're the little, sort of getting further and beasts, right. you know, getting further and further away from what is considered human. And this is... And, we, yeah. and it's still embedded. Mm, it's absolutely. absolutely embedded in our language in and our you get culture. The plays or the films all of a sudden, you've got people from other cultures... Um, drawing in their comic books people that don't look like them or their bodies mm-hmm. until they have that revelation, wow, I could I could draw myself, I could draw my mother, I could, and this is what I want to do with all of my work and one yeah. that they really embodies Stories it. Are about white I want to embody my ancestors, I want to embody the, my global First Nations community and what we go through because as well we're so present in hip-hop around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great sort of form and content alchemy. Yeah, so there's this, I just think it's sort of, it's good to know too when you run a show in and do, and I love this about Big World Up Close because the um, Jacob Boehm's work. the Victorian Arts Centre? Yeah, we, Art this Centre is a Melbourne, part of, I should say. Yeah, yeah, the work that are collabs in Australia or diasporic works from Australia, Malaysia and First Nations work, they're, they're, they're run in. You know, like mm. Blood and Dance Floors toward the world. You're going to see work that's very good. It's yes. sometimes because I think when you see diverse work, it's like, oh, it's just been in development and it's the first season. Everyone's like, oh, it needs it needs time, you know. And um, it's, it's really nice to be at a level mid-career where you can keep touring a work. And very, very few oh. new works ever get that chance to. Right. I mean, the thing about you touring, yeah. was it Platypus? Yeah. Uh, for 300 shows. Yeah. It doesn't happen a lot. Well, and, this it, and, is, yeah. and, and it's so important for the culture. But it's, diff- I mean, there's difficulties with Australia because of the size, yeah. because of the, but mainly it's funding, mainly it's resources. And, and luck, it's all luck, isn't it? Because yeah, I would never have known that that would be possible the way we yeah, did that. Yeah. And that's what I often, like my students and stuff, I think, ooh, they need a pile of mentors because how on earth are they going to 
navigate this strange, strange world. And they've got strange, strange ideas too because drama schools ain't the, ain't the best place to work out how to be in the industry, you know. No. it's. I mean, you, I mean, you went to NIDA mm. and you left NIDA mm. and you started making your own theatre, mm. like, which isn't actually a common trajectory out of NIDA, I wouldn't think. No, Especially. no, it's very it's, commercial, straight yeah, up, do your own. Go and do, do television and go yeah. and do the theatre. And, and, but I had to because yeah. at that 2001, they were like, mm, you don't look Australian. Yeah. Uh, you don't look like an Australian woman. How are you going to get work? You're not bankable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That happened straight out. Yeah. And I was like, this is interesting to me because I go, I'm probably, I'm, I'm one of the, um, there, there's always ranges of students and mm-hmm. I'm about to embark on Hollywood, which will be interesting. But, you know, I might be able to say in a few years' time, I'm one of the most bankable people that came out of NIDA. Because um, because you were told that maybe it was liberating? Like maybe it was like, oh, okay, so that's how that is. I and mean, yes and no, because yeah. in the last four or so years, I've gone back in and gotten to do ads and stuff. I mm-hmm. go, oh, I want, like, fuck you guys. You've been making such easy money <laughs> for so long. <laughs> and I've been, like, working my craft, smell of an oily rag, and I just went, what do you mean? I don't even, like, with One the Bear, at the time we'd gotten, we got great grants and stuff, but you'll notice the costume by Sarah Seahorse are, wow, they're incredible. Mm. And a lot of them are handmade and we did go over budget. And I could fill that budget with my bloody ad money. Yeah. Because, you know, you get on a show and you think, oh, wow, we can't do the full artistic expression because we didn't get that extra five over here. My contingency is $600. So that stuff I went, and I was like, what are these bums spending their money on? But, like, you know, lifestyle, (laughs) I guess. But... Uh, Theatre, you know, it, it's a it's a really interesting thing about resources, and and I was butting my head up against the wall so much to go, okay, we have to get the, we have to pull off this stuff, and you need money to make it really, really great. Yep. And when I look out at the people who who make it really, really great, they're not getting just funded. Their dad, their uncle, their you know, partner of helping fund it. Now, if you come from a refugee background like myself or you come from, you know, a poor background, you can't make theatre. You can't make theatre of a level. Like, you can't. You can't travel. You can't do it. It's You have to have... Like this is why I know I'm I'm so rare because I I'm you know kept hustling and finding old entrepreneurial ways. Had I been like getting the ads straight away, I still think I would have had my my want to make soul and write soul, but I would have had cash yeah to do it. And but on the other hand, back then, oh my gosh, the racial stereotyping was even worse than today. So can you imagine the roles I would be? <laughs> Doing in ads and on neighbours, I was like, mm. "Would you have been on neighbours?" Well, I look. think they had a policy of only white people <laughs> well, the until body, very recently. The I, thing I, was I told. Yeah, yeah, the thing I'm really, really aware of at the moment with a lot of my mates um, from you know, I've just grown up always with friends who are um, disabled, and my mother's disabled, and you know, like. Um, it's just so normal for me to always have thought, why is there anyone disabled? Why is this not? And then my friend Kirina did this speech at the Creative Summit last year and she used this term body fascism. And I was like, that's it. 
the body fascism where it's like at the it's so hard i'm so naughty but i'm going to just say it when we <laughs> when we you know our colorblind casting it doesn't always include body diversity it rarely includes body diversity so sometimes i'm a bit like well you're the same size as the usual white lady that we put on but you're asian or but you're black or but you're mixed so that's you know jad apatow does it in easy which drives me insane as well like i'm like oh why have you only got light skin mixed race african women in the show <laughs> like show me some dark women show me some big women why are the men fat but you, you can't have fat women and this is a mm. fucking part of the story i just want to see fat women fucking on netflix please and for it just to be in shows and shit like i just am done you know mm-hmm. so for me even when i think about <laughs> moving one the bear on and it traveling the world i always want one who i play to be a mixed race um, plus size. Well, even someone said, what is plus size? It means that there's a default as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I'm, I'm sometimes shocked by what people say plus size is. <laughs> it's like, that's plus size. But it's just yeah, interesting. Like, and, and Ursula must be dark-skinned. Yeah, yeah. For me, that stuff becomes vital for who we don't see yet. Mm -hmm. And then what I find exciting too, though, is, you know, when I was casting it back in the day, it was really hard to work out who to work with. Now there are more and more candidates with the skills and now we just need more and more productions. But I tell you what, like doing, uh, I just directed fucking A at the VCA. Susan Laurie Parks. Susan Laurie Parks, yeah. An African-American writer of remarkable ability and skill. Yep. To have, for the women of colour particularly in the show and the young men of colour, to have a black woman direct a show from a black woman's perspective by a black playwright was revolutionary for them because they are, like they have been in one or two things, but they've been, it's been a white writer or a white director, um, you know, and and I always think of this controversial moment where my lead said, um, you know, or she didn't say, but I heard on the grapevine (laughs) that a friend of hers had said in the air that, um, of course, she got the part, you know, because she's of colour and I'm of colour. And I thought, well, throughout the last few years, there have been <laughs> white men and women directing the VCA. Nobody asked if that white young man or white young woman who got the lead got the part because their director happened to be the same gender and colour. So then we have to talk about the fact that when things don't happen, when there's an absence, racism is rife, yes. right? So they just have to happen more often constantly so we can break that down, you know? Yeah. She also happened to do the best, uh, one of the few that rapped in the audition. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, y'all Google me. And um, it was the best number of the entire audition. And I think that this stuff is really vital to speak to. Um, It's not necessarily about shaming those students for that, but going, this is what's going to happen if we don't do more of these works at a drama school level. Also, if the actors of colour are not getting to be leads in parts that are written for them, not Shakespeare's or Greek's, like written for them, like for me, you know, the certain characters that got to play inside of their culture and they just, you know, burst it out, mm-hmm. they're not as good as their white counterparts by the end of third year. And therefore they go into the industry. And I've got to ask, are our drama schools failing our students of colour by not having more directors of colour and more plays of the likes of Susan Laurie Parks because then when we get to the industry level and they go, oh, we just don't have enough candidates for blah, it's because 
those students didn't get those opportunities the way their white counterparts does do. And quality or decolonizing the syllabus mm. is the only way we're going to see, because now I think it's fair to say, like my friend who works a lot in LA in castings and stuff, there are more particularly women of colour um, being cast than ever before, yeah. right? Um, and like last year it happened to be a very South Asian year, but like there's all of this happening, right? Mm. So if we're it's, we're talking about serving the industry too, then this needs to happen more often. And rather than everybody, you know, my white male students having a little cry about this, I go, I always say to them, well, now you're me. So now you have to work exceptionally hard hard to stand out. Yeah. Well, welcome. (laughs) To everybody else's world. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. And it will make you better. Yeah. Never cry about... um, you know, over not getting to, like, having to be less lazy. Yes. You're a I, freaking I artist. totally hear you on that. Um, I just wanted to talk, I mean, because your, your activism is obviously from everything mm. you've said and everything you've done, watching you is t- so bound up with your work, like they're inextricable from mm. each other. Mm. Yeah, would you say that? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about, I mean, that must cause discomfort mm. in certain ways for you Mm -hmm. and for other people you're working with Mm -hmm. discomfort is a good euphemism Mm. um and and i was thinking about the wonderful um feminist writer sarah ahmed Mm. who is a british british indian writer who has worked a lot in diversity particularly in institutions like universities and writes very perceptively but i was thinking of a particular essay of hers on complaint do you know Mm, that essay i think so um or she's written quite a lot yeah i mean not just one essay where she's she sort of talks about how you are as because if you want to make change you have to complain it Mm. often begins with a complaint and these and she says that this is a quote, stories of complaint are often stories about the exhaustion of a process mm-hmm. that they begin the complaint begins when the process is exhausted and um and it's also about coming apart from a group mm. like it, as soon as you complain, then you are not part of the group or the oh, yes. thing that you you place yourself outside mm. and you are placed outside. And she's very good at undoing the doubleness of that. And mm. it seems to me that you kind of embody that a bit. <laughs> I often don't know how on earth I've remained or survived or been able to continue um, with enough, yeah, support because, I mean, people talk about it all the time, the way I speak truth to power on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, wow, I've seen more shift, cultural shift happen from that very act than anything. I actually had a little um, exchange with Eddie Perfect a couple of years ago on Twitter where he said, Candy, this isn't the place. And I said, hey, Eddie, check out what black women get to say and do on Twitter because we're not allowed in the rooms. Mm-hmm. We're not invited to the tables, yeah, and then when we are, we're coded with so many levels of oh, burden of responsibility and accountability, we can barely say things. So actually, Twitter is my fucking medium. It's the space where I get to, to be angry about my dissatisfaction. And um, I've seen direct action 
on some of the things that I've been able to say in the past. Because really? public, yeah. public, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it means uh, people are terrified of me. I have haters. Um, I watch some theatre companies, like, try and contact every single artist I've ever worked with around me without talking to me. Um, there's so much that goes on because they're just very, very, very afraid of... Um, of having, you know, like I, it's hard shit, man. It's hard shit. I'm like often like, you know, you're asking someone from the field into the house and we are going to fight. We will fight because I will always fight uh, to decentralize the white patriarchy. Now, um, there's a lot of like, hey, hey, we're doing it our way. We're taking our time. And I'm like, Langston Hughes, you know, I cannot have freedom when I'm dead. I cannot eat another man's bread. And a lot of the time for me in the theatre space, it has felt like war. Right. It's felt like full-out war because this has been something that I've been in love with from a very small child, theatre and storytelling and dance and music. I'm South African. Mm -hmm. um, you know, political, the theatre of mobilisation – you know, the full, I often loved people who came to Big World Up Close last year who saw the full because I'm like, you get me now, you get me. You know, this is our work. This is how we work. And the messaging fits so beautifully within the craft of it. There's no sense of like one or the other, you know. And so, of course, um, it means that the systems and structures, but I often think as well, like when they do ask me in and then they only want, a part of what I have to offer and I'm like, oh, no, no. That's a big question, isn't it? It's yeah. like I, th I think I see that I've witnessed it so often that mm. there's a, a very brilliant uh, independent artist around town doing interesting things mm. who then is invited into the sacred funded place and offered an opportunity but it's not the opportunity to do what they do. That's right. And um, yeah. that's... Such you know, instead of inviting in all that talent, yeah, there's so, there's so workplace or work safe stuffs going on a lot, which I find interesting because I don't think they're consulting me enough because I feel <laughs> like there's one thing to be having people who are not white at the table or not cisgendered or not able bodied, and it's another thing to have people who are conscious outliers, absolutely in challenge of the system. If you mm -hmm. don't have us at your table is some bullshit, I think. I think it's actually just pretend time. Mm -hmm. And um, what I began to understand for me in my work, and it's why I'll go back to the Opera House and the Arts Centre in a certain way because those teams have come on journeys with me. Yep. I've done in-house um, in workshops on decolonisation at the Arts House, Arts Centre, sorry, and they've also employed, you know, groups like CoHealth to do this work. So we're having a real conversation here. We're not starting, you know, way back. Yeah. And so that's an extraordinary relationship for me. So how how long has that relationship been developing? All of my work. This is the Sydney Opera House and, and Arts Centre yeah. Melbourne. Yeah, okay. I'll speak to Arts Centre Melbourne because we're yeah. the most close and I've done associated programs for Big World Up Close and cultural consultancy there probably in a real, like in a paid way, yeah. <laughs> like in a real way for um, the last three years. But okay. before that, Who's That Chick came, um, you know, Hot Brown Honey's been there, Sister She's been there. So it's a place I've been able to come back to again and again and again and see shifting. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, one really good thing, yeah, what I was going to say is um, 
what I see now is there's cultural safety and there's also artistic safety. Yeah. And then there's, uh, you know, occupational health and safety in a space, you know, that we're looking at the bullying and the mental health stuff. Now, these these elements all have to be at play and at work um, for a space to be um, supportive and nourishing mm-hmm. of um, diverse work and yep. work that we don't usually see traditionally. Um and also, uh, I guess it's the sense of um, who's willing to do that? Who's up for that? Because there will be hard discussions. Mm-hmm. There will be me saying, hey, that tech tech just touched my hair or they said a comment that was really has made me now feel ill and, I, and I'm just going to need to take a moment. We're allowed to say those things now. For the longest time we had to bite our tongues and not say anything and feel okay about it. We're now in spaces where we can actually acknowledge if I, I feel like, um, you know, it's time for you to listen yep. <laughs> and or what have you. Yep. Um, it's quite interesting too, though, I think because of this and the fear everybody has, um, often people think... Um, you know, I must always be spiky, I must always be angry, I must always be dissatisfied, right? Which is impossible. That would be an impossible life to lead. I'm joyless. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty joyless. Yeah, I think it's important for the venues and the theatre companies to understand that they've got to meet people halfway Yeah. and at least halfway. Some cases I think they need to just come on over to the other side of the fence. Um, that's terrifying for them because they um, are protecting things, borders and resources and reputation. Reputation. But I was like, what's interesting is they've got a terrible reputation with people of colour mm. and um, people who are not cis or able-bodied. So uh, who's most important to you? Uh, when one year my sister was off to do Hot Brown Honey in, in Edinburgh and she was doing an interview and the, um, I can't remember whether it was the Scotsman or something doing a big profile piece and, and the reporter was a woman journalist. She said, so why would a straight white man buy a ticket to Hot Brown Honey? And I piped up and I was like, what do you get a straight white man that's got everything? A ticket to Hot Brown Honey. So um, then I said, but... Have you ever asked Will Anderson or Dan or any of the Daniels or any of the what what's <laughs> Davis. what would a black queer woman woman get out of your show? And that speaks to the hierarchy inside of them. It totally does. Yeah. And so for me, I say, I don't care so much. In fact, I say to my students all the time, I do not care what straight white men think of my work. Young women of colour are the people I worry about. Queer women, um, you know, femme or femme identifying. That next generation of queens is who I'm the most, um, you know, passionately connected to and looking out for. Everybody else, come and enjoy the party. I didn't make it for you, yeah? Just like, you know, the seasons that go out every year are not for those young women. There has to be something for them, for past me for us too and that's um, not only because it's good and right and all the moral things but because we make kick-ass stuff and we um, we are often like create narratives and shift stuff on on a on nothing you know we spin it from nowhere and so give us the resources to do it on a scale because we can we've proven it now mm. I've international awards to prove it, that actually gets 
the most people in and allows us to work at our level of mastery without the family nepotism. Like we don't have any of those things because we are, we've come, you know, we've been stateless for a while or we've been refugees, all those sorts of things. So it's time for the industry to actually understand um, if, if, I don't get it. I can't, I, the hypocrisy of like holding up a sign like refugees welcome here or I stand for this when they're not. I go, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh, right? I'm off, I'm refugee offspring. Hi, political asylum. My parents got that, that to be here. But I don't, you want to play though. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're too empowered, you don't want to play, right? It takes brave folks, people that are often queer and women to program my work. Um, that are more non-conforming, that see something exciting happen and say, that's it. We are, I've sat down with, I've always sat down with the comms people and you're not going to market this to your traditional theatre crowd. You're going to market it to people who like music, to people who are part of the current African explosion going on because um, a lot of this work, like even with the fall, 60% of the audience had never been to the art centre before. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And, that, and that tells us about what the future is and or should be. Mm. Well, I think we're going to wrap up now, Candy. Right. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. I'm Alison Crogan. You've been listening to The Witness Interview with Candy Bowers. Sign up for Witness and support this work. 